an update email from the Mac family. And Ian and Haley, they are in, in South Asia, um, in an undisclosed country uh, overseas. And they serve out of the, the Calvary family of churches. We've sent them out, and they serve with Calvary Global, and they serve there. They've been there for a while, and they have a couple other families that are there. And they um, wrote, and they had some updates. And the husband, Ian, he wrote this story that I want to share with you. Uh, so Ian, he speaks about a trip he went on, and he said, I traveled seven hours on a bus um, to get to a city, and let me tell you, bus um, travel overseas, not fun. I remember my first time in Ecuador, someone came in and out with, with chickens and livestock, someone lost their lunch and never got cleaned up on the bus. It's just not a pleasant experience. This is um, and it just doesn't smell nice in the buses. I'm sure he's experiencing this for seven hours. Getting to a city where we were doing a training for two days. And then on the last day, we were planning to meet a group of 20 to 25 believers in a remote um, part of the country where there are no other leaders that are regular contact with other believers. So we got up early and we set out on our journey on a, a CNG, which he describes as a uh, three-wheeled, open-doored, motorcycle, taxi sort of thing, question mark. So um, I'm not sure what a CNG is. Um, uh, so anyways, it's a motorcycle-y thing. And because of the monsoon rain, we drove an hour through muddy roads until we came to the bank of a large river. To my surprise, we loaded the CNG to, on a bamboo-made um, ferry uh, for an hour-long crossing of this river. Um, after a shaky bit of offloading and some muddy CNG off-roading, we traveled another two hours on a broken road to get to our meeting place. So four hours of travel total. Uh, weary from the travel, I got inside um, to begin the meeting, only to find nobody, nobody there. No one, no, not one person who was invited to the meeting came. After some phone calls... It seemed that most people either forgot or they had work to do or most likely, he says, were scared of persecution if seen meeting with me. So tired and distraught, I retreated to pray and ask God what to do. Meanwhile, the owner of the house that we were using, a non-believer, decided that in order to, to not shame his guests, he would go out and get his neighbors, people across the street, and anyone outside, and tell them to come and sit in the room and listen to me. It reminded me, he says, of the parable of the wedding feast, where Jesus talks about inviting people into the kingdom. And then it says, So in a room full of unsuspecting strangers, who felt as awkward as I did, I began to introduce myself and share my testimony and ask each of them what they knew about Jesus. So we have this um, story, this genuine, true story of this group of people who were brought in randomly you know, by God's hand into this room to hear of Jesus. Uh, they are encountered by the story of Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel. They didn't plan to hear that that day. Uh, but the light of the gospel shone forth in that room, in that moment, 
with Ian as he went. And they encountered Jesus. And they had to decide, what are you going to do with Jesus? In our passage today, we have the story of Nicodemus who comes to Jesus and he is encountered with things. that He's probably a little bit surprised with what Jesus has to say to him. And he's encountered with a call to be born again. And he meets Jesus. The light of Jesus breaks out in this night time visit, breaks out into darkness. And we see this encounter and this call to be born again. And each of us, even today as we come to this text, we're encountered with Jesus. And we have to decide what will we do with Jesus or be reminded of our faith in him and the new life that we have in him. So we begin in John chapter 3. And it really connects with a few verses before this verse. But we begin and it says in verse 1, Now there was a man. And we see how that connects back to the previous couple verses where it says, But Jesus, this is the end of chapter 2, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. And it, remember it said that they, they had belief in Jesus, maybe a spurious type belief in him. But he said, I didn't entrust, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. And then now there was a man. So we see that Jesus, he knows the heart of all people. And here we have this encounter with Nicodemus and Jesus knows directly the hearts and the thoughts of this man and enters in as he knows our thoughts and our heart. And he knows our deepest need. We see Jesus talk with Nicodemus. And as we see, we're going to see this question, how, how do we know Jesus? How do we enter into his kingdom? How do we enter into eternal life? And the question is, we must be born, or the answer is, we must be born again. So we see this man, who was he? A Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So Nicodemus comes in, and if I accidentally call him Nick through our time, don't be bothered. I just have Nick in my notes, so it might just kind of come out that way. But he's a Pharisee, and a Pharisee, sometimes we think of Pharisees as maybe these guys in these dark hooded robes that kind of snuck around the city. Um, but that wasn't really uh, who Pharisees were. They were the conservative, devout Jewish people. They held strictly to the law, and they, they went a, a good bit overboard. But they um, were those who were serious um, about worship of Yahweh. This is one description of the Pharisees in one commentary. It said it this way, they were highly zealous for ritual and religious purity, according to the Mosaic law, as well as their own traditions that they added to the Old Testament legislation. So there was the law, and they were like, we don't want to break this law, so we're going we're gonna to put fence after fence after fence so we don't break that law. We do that sometimes too, and we get a little overboard. They represented the Orthodox core of Judaism and very strongly influenced the common people of Israel. And according to Josephus, Josephus is, was a first century um, Jewish theologian, or not theologian, historian. And uh, he says that there were about 6,000 um, Pharisees that existed during the time of Herod the Great. So these were the Pharisees, and he is one of them. And it also says that he was a ruler of the Jews. So that probably means he was part of the Sanhedrin. This is a ruling body, a council of 71 people, that Rome gave some area of freedom and a little bit of political power. They had freedom over religious matters and, again, some political power. And they also had authority over the temple. And if you remember, last week we had the account of Jesus clearing out the temple and coming in and clearing 
it out. And this, I'm sure, raised uh, um, some eyebrows in the Sanhedrin, who were the ones who had authority over the temple. Um, so Nicodemus has begun to hear about Jesus, and he um, is hearing some teaching and seeing some signs and has some questions about Jesus. And it says, as we go in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi. So here we have Nicodemus, and he's seeking out Jesus. Uh, maybe he's heard the teachings again, saw some miracles, and he needs to know a little bit more. That clearing of the temple, I'm sure, allowed him to say, I need to seek out this Jesus. And he seeks him out at night, at the cover of night. Now, there's a lot of different ideas. Uh, unfortunately, John doesn't give us commentary, uh, uh, editorial note to say exactly why he came at night. Uh, but it seems at least that there might be some cover of darkness kind of going to Jesus. And as we see throughout the Gospels that the religious leaders, they had great opposition to Jesus and his teaching in the Gospel. So it might have caused a little bit of a stir for Nicodemus to go and seek out Jesus to understand him. So possibly just that cover of night to see Jesus. But it's also often pointed out, and we see the theme throughout the Gospel of John, of darkness. Um, throughout, we've had it already in chapter 1. We're going to have it later at the end of chapter 3. In several other places, we have this theme of darkness, and darkness represents spiritual darkness. This physical darkness representing spiritual darkness. And remember, Jesus, he's shown and he shines into the darkness, and darkness can't overcome it. So there might be, and there really is, a reality of Nicodemus' darkness and the reality of his understanding of spiritual things. So he's in a place of darkness, but at the same time, he's seeking out the light of the world. So that's a great place to be when you're in darkness. And he's seen some of the light and evidence through the signs and the teachings of Jesus. And Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that's come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus comes and he, he does speak respectfully and speaks words of truth about Jesus. He calls him rabbi, teacher. And this was a term of respect, but Jesus was not, he did not have formal education. He was a carpenter, so he was, as Nicodemus says this, he's giving high status to Jesus, even knowing that, that he came um, as one who had the background of, of a carpenter. But he's apparently heard the teachings of Jesus and feels comfortable calling him teacher. We know that you are a teacher from God. And he says, we know. So there must have been some others that were kind of discussing and kind of walking through these things. Some other Pharisees discussing who Jesus is and some who were willing to say, yeah, he may be from God. We see later in the book of Acts chapter 15, that we do see that there are a group of, from the party of the Pharisees who believe in Jesus, who are believers. So we do see that there are those from the Pharisees who do later follow Jesus. So maybe not a big surprise here. And this is, no one can do miracles or signs unless God is with him. So he says, God, you are from God and God is with you. So these true steep statements about Jesus now, it's hard to tell how much he really believes him at this moment, but there are definitely seeds of belief of him, even entrusting himself, I believe, to Jesus. There's some seeds of faith there. And he makes these statements, and we see, too, it's in the light of other statements we'll see of religious leaders who 
adamantly reject Jesus. Even when they see even greater signs and miracles, they adamantly reject him as being from God. And think of in John 8, where some leaders say this of Jesus. They say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So they look at Jesus and they say, you're not even a Jew. You're a Samaritan and you're doing these things because you're possessed. But here Nicodemus is saying that it's from God. God is with you. I think of also the story of Jesus healing the man born blind. I love that story. Can't wait till we get to it. Don't know when that'll be, but <laughs> when we get to it. Um, and Jesus opens his eyes and the religious leaders keep asking the man born blind that it can now see who has done this. How has he done this? And the man born blind says in John 9, 32, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But we see in that story that the religious leaders, their eyes are blind and they reject Jesus. But here Nicodemus speaks words of truth. And it seems as Nicodemus comes to him, there's other questions he asks for Jesus. We don't see those questions, but it seems like in the background there's a question of, who fully are you? Who are you? Maybe even the question on his heart, are you the Messiah? I don't know. We don't have that. We don't have the record of that. But I wonder... And then Jesus answers him in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here we see Jesus, and he just gets straight to the heart of the matter. Or maybe better said, he gets to the heart of Nicodemus, and Nicodemus' deepest need. He gets to Nicodemus, whose initial statements of belief... These true statements, um, they're just not quite far enough. He needs to take a few more steps closer to Jesus and to trusting in Jesus. And Jesus is concerned with Nicodemus' spiritual state, his state of darkness, uh, apart from true understanding of the Word of God and his relationship with God. So he, Jesus is concerned about these things, so he enters in quickly in conversation about these things. This is truly, truly just emphasizing the importance and the truth of his statements. Truly, truly, this is true things. I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. You need to be born again. You need new life. If you're going to seek the kingdom of God... If you're to seek, we're going to see later on, there's a parallel between kingdom of God and eternal life. You're here to seek eternal life. You're you're to seek the kingdom where the Messiah reigns eternally. There's some things that need to be done. There's some work to be done in your life, in your heart, in your faith. You need to be born again. And this word, this phrase, born again, it could also be translated uh, born from above. But we see that Nicodemus understands it as that born again, born a second time. Uh, my pastor um, in Kentucky, Dr. Cook, he writes this about that term. And I think it's helpful. This term, born again, can be translated born from above. It is likely that John chose those words to communicate this dual aspect. The point is that there is something, this is something only God can do from above. And this results in a dramatic transformation, born again. So Jesus demands that Nicodemus be made, remade by the power of God. 
no matter one's religious pedigree or training. So Nicodemus had a lot of religious pedigree and training, but that wasn't not enough. Each person must be born of God if they are to enter the kingdom of God. So it doesn't matter our heritage. It doesn't matter our Bible knowledge. It doesn't matter how quick we are at Bible drills. That's not enough. We need to be born again. So he says, you must be born again. And then verse 4, we see Nicodemus responds and he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So the question is, what? Physical rebirth? Come again. Uh, Enter into my mother's womb again. And he's old, so he's he's, uh, probably his mother has passed. And he's like, this is an impossibility. What are you speaking about? And uh, so there seems to be... um, some skepticism here in the words of Jesus. He needs to be born again. Um, and now, for us, when we hear that phrase, we may think, well, well, I know what that means. Um, but it's a phrase that, that probably we're familiar with, or we've at least heard, especially if we've grown up in the church, or even culturally as Christians, there's that phrase of being born again. And unfortunately, it's been marked as a label of a political group of people, the born-again people. And uh, it kind of cheapens that term, but it's an important term that we need to grasp on because it's a term that Jesus has given us, that when we trust in him, we are, we are born again, uh, but it means that we are followers of Jesus Christ. He's given us brand new life. But for Nicodemus, it's like, what is he speaking about? It seems brand new, and we're seeing a little bit that it shouldn't have been 100% brand new because it echoes things in the Old Testament that he should have been familiar with, that should have maybe been awoken in his heart, but he's totally confused at this point about what Jesus is speaking about. So Jesus also goes on and essentially three more times speaks about being born again and what this means, and we see it verse 5, 6, and 7, three different ways of speaking about a need for new spiritual birth, new life, not physical being born again, but spiritually born again, new life. So the first is in verse 5, where we see some truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Speaking of this spiritual birth, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. What is this water and the Spirit thing going on? Then verse 6, he said this, let me Read it. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So there's natural birth, but that's not what I'm talking about. Spiritual birth. You need new birth, new life. So he looks to that in verse 6. And then verse 7 says, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So he says it again. You must be born again. And and if you're in your Bible, maybe you're using one of these journals, and it won't have it, but probably in your Bible, there's a footnote right by that you in verse 7, and it'll say under there that it's plural. It's a plural. It's a, they, too bad the translators couldn't put um, all y'all. All y'all must be born again, all right? All you guys, right? It's a Coloradans. You guys must be born again. He's saying not just Nicodemus, but he's saying everybody. So Jesus here, these words are not just for Nicodemus. They're for everyone who reads and hears these words. Everyone needs new birth. He says, you must be born again. So it's a spiritual birth. And Jesus speaks about it in 
verse 5 there, and it says that we need to be born of water and the Spirit. You know, that's one of those phrases, every time I encounter it, I have to wrestle with it a little bit more. What is he saying? Uh, we need to wrestle with it. We need to think, what is he saying? Being born of water and the Spirit. And there have been different ways of understanding this and understanding this born of water specifically. And uh, there are those who look at and see the Christian baptism of when you trust in Christ, you're born and you're baptized and um, you are, in a sense, maybe born of water. But there would be no concept of that for Nicodemus at this point. So it doesn't seem likely that that would be the case. And some say, well, this born of water is natural birth. Um, because, you know, when you're born, there's the amniotic fluid. But again, this would, in their culture, there's no connection. There wouldn't have been a connection of that, of water, as I looked at that. So that isn't what's going on. Um, and I think the best way to understand this is he's not talking about physical water. He's talking about spiritual things. He's not talking about physically being baptized either. He's talking about spiritual rebirth and realities of being born again. He's speaking of being made clean, being washed and made clean, being forgiven. We see a connection because we see a connection throughout the Old Testament of water and cleansing and pouring out of the Spirit and spiritual health and life in the Old Testament and that of cleansing. There's spiritual new birth here that's being spoken of. And we see it in the Old Testament. There's in Numbers 19 and Psalm 51 and Isaiah 44 and Jeremiah 2 and Joel chapter 2. Um, don't worry about writing all those down. I can give them to you later. John, I'll get those to you later. <laughs> um, so there's a connection in the Old Testament there. And we've seen too. In John already, there's a theme and a connection with water and spiritual truth. We've seen already that Jesus has turned water into wine. There's all this new wine and new life that we see in this. Later in chapter 4, Jesus is going to speak to the woman at the well and speak of living water that only Jesus can provide. Spiritual truth, spiritual new life, eternal life. We see in chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. We see John chapter 7, Jesus says this, these things, verses 37 through 39. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as a scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. As, um, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And then we also see Jesus washing the disciples' feet in chapter 13. So there's themes of water and a spiritual connection. And there's this truth of being washed, being made new, being made clean and new. And I think we can get lost a little bit in that phrase, but as we back up, we can see that Jesus is speaking about new spiritual life given by God through his Holy Spirit so that we can enter into the kingdom of God, so that we can enter into the family of God, so that we can be born again. Just as like we are born into a family, we are born spiritually um, into the family of God. We're made clean, we're washed, given new life. And Nicodemus, he should have been beginning to draw some connections here, but we see that he's not. Jesus will rebuke him as being a teacher of the law and not understanding some of these things. But it may be even as you've read this, you might have connected with it through a few passages or maybe in your Bible there's some cross-references. And one passage that came to my mind was Ezekiel 36. And most likely if you have cross-references in your Bible, it'll point to that. 
Let me read this, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. So in the Old Testament, speaking of, of that of a new kingdom, speaking of um, a time when the Messiah would be, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean with all your and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I, that I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you flesh. And, and I'm sorry, write a stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see this picture in the Old Testament of the spirit being poured out, being cleansed, new hearts, new life. And then the chapter after this, Ezekiel 37, is that chapter about the valley of dry bones. Um, it's that strange chapter um, that we have that um, I, it's just an odd thing where there's this valley of dry bones of dead skeletons and, and God says to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of these bones, behold, I will breathe, I, ca- I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And the, all these bones come together and they get, they get muscle and flesh and they walk about. It's a little bit of a zombie picture, I guess. I don't know. Maybe not. Ignore that. Um, but new life, this is picture of radical new life, death to life. So this is not a new concept that Jesus is speaking of, and he's saying you must be born again. And then verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here, Jesus is saying that we can't harness, we can't harness the wind, right? We can't harness it. We can't control it. We don't have authority over the wind, but we see evidence of the wind. And the same is with the Spirit. We don't control the movement of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is sovereign and actively doing its work in people, and we see evidence of its moving in new lives, new birth, old, gone, new that has come, new life by the Spirit. Uh, it was a, probably a month ago or so, I was listening to an audio book um, called... Um, Help My Unbelief, and I tracked down the book. I actually got it from the library. I had it on hold, and we got it. Um, but it's called Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith. It's actually a really good book. It's by Barnabas Piper. Um, he's a son of John Piper. So he's a pastor's kid that wrestled through things, and um, it's a good book. But in it, he talks about this encounter with Nicodemus. He talks about the Holy Spirit, and there were a couple of things from it. I was like, oh, this is so clear and helpful, uh, and I want to read those to you as we look at this passage. He says this, nobody, nobody can systematize or categorize the movement of the Spirit. He moves where he will and stirs the most frozen hearts. He brings about belief in the least likely hearts. He raises the dead, deadest soul to life. And then Barnabas Piper says, and he found me when I was on the verge of walking away from Jesus. For the first time, I saw the wonder of grace and my need for it. I didn't make that happen. The Spirit came and got me. Why? I do not know. 
Sometimes the Spirit comes in a gentle nudge, gentle nudging of the heart toward God, and other times He grabs the steering wheel of the heart and jerks it into the path of God's oncoming, oncoming grace. In a magnificent, violent movement, the old self is killed, and in its place is put the self filled with God's Spirit, filled with hope, filled with peace, and pointed down the road toward the not yet. So sometimes that's how God is. That's how the Holy Spirit works. He, he moves as he witches. Sometimes nudging a heart, and other times he's got to drag you into the grace of our God. So we all need Jesus. We all need this working of the Holy Spirit. All of us must be born again. That's our only hope in this life and for all eternity. And we need the Spirit's work in us. And Barnabas Piper goes on and says this, The Holy Spirit is essential to all saving belief in Christians. The Holy Spirit is the introducer of our heart to God. Our minds have or maybe have already absorbed countless facts about God, about Him, but it is the Spirit who opens our hearts to Him. And it is the Spirit who facilitates this new life, this new birth. So, they ask, I love this. So, which came first, the Spirit or belief? I guess the chicken or the egg. The Spirit comes to us through belief in Jesus Christ, and yet the Spirit is also the one who opens our heart to believe in Jesus Christ. How does this work? I cannot say. There's mystery in the workings of God and some tension there, and we just rest in it. So we all were once dead in sin, but we have been made alive in Christ. And we've turned from our sins and trusted in Him. So Lord, as our Lord and Savior, He gives us new life. Born again from death to life. There's hope for all of us as well then in that reality that it doesn't matter how deep we are in sin, that he can rescue us and he can give us new life as we all need it. It doesn't, no matter how guilt-filled we might be, we can be given new life. We can be born again, adopted into the family of God, children of God. And Jesus will later say, I'll abide in you and you can abide. You will abide in me. Verses 9 through 15, then how are we born again? How are we born again? Believe and entrust yourself to Jesus is what we see the answer being. So Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Again, there's some skepticism here in the voice of Nicodemus. And we don't know all of his heart and the expression on his face and where he's going. But he's, he's a little bit confused. How can this be? New birth? Spirit? What is happening here? Verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. He's saying, you, you should understand these. These are not brand new concepts. We read that passage in Ezekiel 36 and then chapter 7, 37. Also Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 where it talks about God circumcising the heart, that new heart that we need. Or Jeremiah 31 33, where God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their heart. Just this new change, a new life, this need. So he should have been aware. These should be awaking things in the heart of Nicodemus. And it doesn't seem like they do here, but I wonder. Um, I think there's seeds that bear fruit later. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So here Jesus says, you don't receive these things. And he says, we, which is interesting. We, who's the we? Um, there's some debate about that, but it seems as you read all of John, often Jesus, he speaks of 
that he is following after the will of the Father and under the authority of God the Father. So it seems that we as, as God the Son and God the Father here speaking. Even later in John 7, verse 16, he says, My teaching is not mine, but this, but his who sent me. So here he says, This testimony has come from God the Father, and here Jesus, God the Son, and you don't receive them. Verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So I've told you these earthly things. What about heavenly? And what is he speaking about? I wrestled with this a little bit and had some help from um, a well-known scholar, D.A. Carson, really smart um, theologian of our day. And he said this, On the face of it, the obvious candidate for these earthly things is the new birth itself, the subject of Jesus' conversation so far. See, he doesn't understand these new, this new birth. This is earthly in that it takes place here on earth when people are born again. More important, Jesus teaches his teachings on the new birth. It's elementary. So if we stand back, maybe we get a little confused, but we stand back, we see he's saying, um, he's speaking of this new birth, and he has tried to speak about elementary type first step things. How am I going to talk about more deep realities about the kingdom of God in you? So it's a little interlude. <laughs> so when we stand back, we see these things happening here as these, we're, we just keep going. All right, so verse 13, 13, no one, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. So he begins and he's talking about that he, he is the one that is really that bridge between God and man. Um, Nicodemus, he's still in the dark. He doesn't understand what's happening, what's going on. And we remember, if you remember, that Jesus has spoken about similar things before, but he is saying that, uh, that, not, that only he is one who has descended and who will ascend again. And no one has ascended from or descended from heaven who will return. Um, he bridges the gap between heaven and earth. And we've seen a similar statement about Jesus, very, very similar in John 1. Verse 51, that says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So we see this picture. And remember, he was speaking of himself as being the ladder between God and man. And he speaks of himself there also as being the Son of Man. If you remember, that's a God or Jesus' most typical use of title for himself, speaking of himself as being the Messiah. Uh, and he looks, and he's looking at a passage in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that speaks of the Son of Man, where it's speaking of the Son of Man as being this divine king given glory and eternal reign. And Jesus is declaring himself to be that bridge between God and man and the Messiah that has come. And then verse 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So we have this story, this reference that Nicodemus would definitely know what he was speaking of. And it's a story in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21, where God's people, the Israelites, they'd been delivered from Egypt. And they were in the wilderness at this point, And they began to grumble against God, against Moses. And they're saying, 
why have you taken me, where have you brought us here? We don't have food, we don't have water, and there's just rebellion going on. And um, there's a struggle happening here, and God brings judgment upon his people. And he sends snakes among the people, and they're bitten, and many people die. And then their hearts of the people, they repent, and they recognize that we have actually rebelled against God. This is a lot worse than what we thought. And they return to God, and they repent, and they ask for provision, and God provides a provision of healing. And that Moses is commanded by God to make a serpent and hoist it upon a pole. And when the people who have been bit by the serpent, they look at that serpent on the pole. Again, this is just one of those stories. You're like, well, this is a strange story, but God had a purpose in it. And the people, as they look at this serpent, this is an act of faith of looking away from self to the snake. They recognize that there's nothing we can do. We're in desperation that they would be healed. And Jesus takes that story and he connects it with himself as one who will be lifted up, as the Son of Man will be lifted up. And we will see in John 8, 28, and also in John 12, a couple other passages where Jesus speaks about being lifted up. And as he speaks about lifted up, he's, being spoke, he's speaking of both his, his death on the cross lifted up, but his death and also his resurrection and his ascension. And there's this call of belief to look upon Jesus. Um, to look away from self, that there's nothing we can do. And looking on to the one who is lifted up, who has died for our sins in our place, uh, and doesn't stay on the cross, but is buried, but then raises again, ascending to heaven and intercedes for us. And there's a call, there'll be a call to believe in the one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for us and rose again victorious. And it's not a healing of ourselves. We can't heal our own sick heart. There's not enough work that we can do. There's not, we did sh- our, our rake and shake where we went to the neighborhoods and we raked people's yards and it was awesome, but it didn't earn us a bit of um, salvation. <laughs> that was in Jesus alone. And thank you everyone who went. That was an awesome time going to serve in our community and, and raking leaves and things. But we're called to look upon Jesus, uh, son of man who died for us and rose again victorious, who tells us we need to be born again. We need heart surgery. And it can only happen through Jesus Christ by laying down ourselves, that we have nothing to give, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We look to Jesus, say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. Cleanse me. Give me new birth. I can no longer do this on my own. Save me, Jesus. And then verse 15, Jesus says, And whoever believes... Whoever takes that look of faith upon Jesus, in him may have eternal life. He will be born again, eternal life. The kingdom of God is offered. So in Christ, we can be made new. We can have life eternal in him. It's funny, my, as I type that in my in my computer, I have a little app, Grammarly. Maybe you use it because you're like me and have horrible grammar and spelling. And it helps you. But I kept wanting to turn life, uh, this life, to a life. And I'm like, no, it's not a life. It is the life. <laughs> Only in Jesus. And we see Nicodemus at this point. Um, we don't know the state of his heart. But we know that he doesn't close his heart off, even if there's skepticism in his heart and confusion. He doesn't shut his heart off to Jesus. We see in chapter 9 where he speaks up, showing sympathy toward Jesus. And then, or that's in chapter 7, and then we see later 
at the death of Jesus, that he is part of burying the body of Jesus. And he provides um, burial spices for the body of Jesus. And I don't think anyone does that unless you are a follower of Jesus. You're laying everything on the line for Jesus. And we see, I believe, a changed uh, Nicodemus. Now you might be wondering what happened um, to my friend um, Ian in South Asia with that group of people. What happened in that room? Well, let me finish that for you. So he says, So in that room full of unsuspecting strangers who felt as awkward as I did, I began to introduce myself and share my testimony, ask each of them what they knew about Jesus. It became clear that nobody, nobody, had been in, in, nobody that had been invited knew of Jesus as more than anything but a Muslim's prophet, or prophet of Muslim. Of, of, um, yeah, Muslim. And some were immediately antagonistic or annoyed um, at being dragged into this meeting. Nevertheless, I felt a desire to press on into good news. And God blessed that next 90 minutes. Now, you thought I was going a little long today. <laughs> yeah, I had, that, I had that plan there. And God blessed the next 90 minutes where I shared the good news in depth. Along the way, it was evident that God gave them a desire to engage and know more about Jesus. And I ended by asking each one of them to trust in Jesus for salvation. Because it is highly unlikely that they'd publicly profess their new belief in that setting. I'm not sure whether anyone did. However, I am sure that God used that time to spur on the expansion of the good news in that area. And that random, to us, not to him, random people heard who might never have heard otherwise. They encountered Jesus. We're reminded that we all need Jesus, and it's not by any random circumstance that you are even here today, hearing the story of Nicodemus, and that reminder that we need to be born again. And maybe for you, that's that first step that's Jesus to change you and give you new birth and forgive you of your sins and give you new life, eternal life in him and trust him as Lord and Savior. But for all of us, even if we've trusted him, might be a, it be a reminder that we have new, true, eternal life, not just a life, but the life, true life given to us in Jesus. And be thankful uh, that the Holy Spirit continues to work and guide and correct and direct us um, and thank goodness we can't control him, that he's more so- he's sovereign, he knows better than we do, right? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news, the gospel. We thank you for the new life that's offered to us in Jesus Christ, not based upon our own work, not based upon our, our knowledge, our heritage, our training, our works, but solely upon the work of Jesus Christ, the one who came to intercede for us, the one who came as a carpenter, um, who came born and was laid in a feeding trough, uh, who was rejected by many, um, killed on the cross, buried, but rose again victorious and died for us, that when we look upon him, when we trust in him, that we are forgiven, we're given new life, we're adopted in, we're brought in, and that you've rescued us. So Lord, we, we don't know as to understand your moving and your working, but we don't need to. Um, we just thank you that you've moved and worked in our lives, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to move and work amongst us, amongst our community, amongst the different places where you planted us, and 
and in Derby Hill uh, and beyond. We do pray for that, that room of, of people that Mac, uh, that Ian, Mac, was able to share the good news of Jesus to. We pray that you would give them new birth. Do an amazing work in them. And we pray for that family and others that are serving there for the sake of the gospel uh, that others might know that may never hear otherwise, we pray. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue and respond. What a...